maybe one or two in the whole system. But secondly, the, more to the point, because it's in the record, is that Chancellor White, who essentially made the decision here based on the record that was presented to him, said explicitly, and that's before the court, that my decision is based on the cumulative effect <coughs> of all of the charges against Dr. Corey, not simply those that were prosecuted, Your Honor, by Mr. Kidder, but the cumulative effect of all of the charges. So I think it's reasonable to infer that from Chancellor White's point of view, uh, had he not been convinced of the merits of all the charges, he might not have recommended termination. But weren't there two separate um, punishments? One was a censure and suspension. That one you're not attacking. And the second one was the termination. Um, wasn't it only the second one that the chancellor appealed? for purposes of this case. In other words, there were two separate charges. He, 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 he dealt with each of them separately, did he not? There were two separate complaints, com and I think the way Chancellor White discussed them was uh, in the context of uh, eight charges. And he did recite charge by charge what the penalty <coughs> suggested by the Privilege and Tenure Committee was, and in each of the eight instances affirmed that penalty. But at the end of the day, he said it's because all, all of them, cumulatively, that led him to recommend termination to President I, I want to be clear on the one question I asked you, because I, th I think I know the answer, but I th I'm not sure you've addressed it directly. You did not proffer any evidence in the district court that this is an unusual punishment for the offenses committed. That, that was not an issue, and again, we were not in the... I understand. That's the way you've answered the question several times. I just want to make sure the answer to my question is no, you didn't proffer any evidence on and, that. And uh, I see that I'm running out of time and would like to reserve a few minutes for rebuttal, if all that's right. all right. Thank you very much. Ms. McDonough. May it please the court, Sandra McDonough for Defendant Regents of the University of California. As this court has already recognized, this case follows on a jury trial where the jury unanimously found in favor of the university as to appellant's retaliation claim. So what, what, is that, what significance does that have? Because right before the jury trial, the judge granted summary judgment on some claims. Are you, are you claiming that even if he erred, the jury trial cures the errors? Or what's... No, no, Your Honor, the, uh, the issue there is just that that is not on appeal, is what the, the jury found. And the, the issue that the jury so he at, said So he says, look, maybe I wasn't investigated in a retaliatory manner, but I was terminated in a retaliatory manner. So I'm not sure what the jury trial does for us. Well, the jury trial just looks at, specifically looked at whether there was an adverse employment action <coughs> in the investigation. And as... We argued in the district court, even at the summary judgment level, an investigation is not an adverse employment right. action. Right. So even if it's taken in a retaliatory manner, it doesn't give rise to a claim. Correct. All right. It's, so it doesn't really have anything to do with what's before us, does it? So what we are really looking at is the, the causal link, as each of you have identified, is we're looking at where does the causal link break. And in each of the cases that um, were cited by appellant today, Poland and in um, Lakeside, each of those cases, they recognize that there is a point 
where the causal link can be broken. And to Your Honor's point that um, an individual does not receive immunity simply because they believe that someone at the beginning of a process was retaliatory. And Counsel, they, excuse me, some of those cases have language which seems to me arguably favors the appellant. I believe Poland uses language such as, you know, if the ultimate decision was influenced by or those who harbored the retaliatory animus were involved in the ultimate decision of those who may not have harbored any retaliatory animus, that is enough for the plaintiff to meet the burden of showing that that ultimate decision uh, was in effect retaliatory. I think there are two distinctions for Poland. One is that the court goes a little further and states that there must be some pervasive effect of the retali retaliatory just, people. Weren't they just describing the extent of the retaliatory animus? They weren't setting that down as a test. Pervasiveness, were they? The pervasiveness really looked at how, how much of an influence did the retaliatory individuals have in the ultimate decision, or was there some sort of independence in the decision? So why isn't that a fact issue in this case? Um, why hasn't Professor Corey presented enough evidence that to, to let a finder of fact have to determine whether or not the chain was broken? T typically in negligence cases, that's what we do when we go to a jury and we say, you know, here are the facts. You, you determine whether or not this was a but-for cause or whether or not it wasn't. Why, did, why isn't this a factual issue? Well, I think for the reasons identified by this panel earlier um, in appellate We identified questions. <laughs> Tell uh, us what your position and is. The, the issue is that if you look at the investigation here and then ultimately the P&T committee, um, they conducted an extensive investigation that did break the chain for, as a matter of law. And they had four days of hearing, a 93-page single-spaced report, uh, Dr. Corey was allowed to present any evidence he wished to present. He was allowed to cross-examine the university's witnesses. And so as a matter of law, in looking at the undisputed facts, we could determine that the causation link was broken there. And this is different than Poland in that in Poland, the ultimate decision-maker really relied just extensively on um, the retaliatory supervisor and looked at the witnesses that only that supervisor wanted to present. So I believe there are 21 witnesses that the individual who was the alleged retaliator presented. That's who the decision maker looked at. And the individual in Poland, the plaintiff, did not have an opportunity to present his entire case. And that's different here. What's the role of the chancellor here? The P&T committee makes a recommendation. Does the chancellor review that on the record? Does the chancellor make his own factual determinations? Is he de novo review? Is he appellate review? In this case, um, the chancellor did review the record and had essentially a de novo review of, of the entire record. And there was a sufficient record here, given that there was the 93-page report, and not just the the recommendations and findings, but there are entire transcripts in this case that could be reviewed. Ms. McDonough, I was thinking about a question that that I don't think you've addressed, which is the claim seems to be by Mr. Siegel that Moses and her friends uh, were, had animus against uh, Curry because Curry was in favor of an affirmative action hire. And I think your position is that but that wasn't at all in the causal link of him being fired. He was fired for economic factors or economic actions that he took. Answer me this, didn't Ms. Moses sign the complaint 
along with Mr. Kidder? She did, Your Honor. All right. In, so, in her role. So she had something to do with the final formulation of that complaint. Isn't that sufficient evidence to say that a reasonable trier of fact could find that her animus affected uh, Kidder? Well, two issues on that. In the, in, the, in the district court level, the judge did find that, at least in the prima facie case, there was enough temporal proximity between um, Ms. Moses' alleged retaliatory bias and the um, charge that was filed in 2010, even though there was a year difference. And I, I would submit that there wasn't enough of a connection, that any alleged retaliatory bias that she had from an incident that occurred in February 2009. Couldn't the argument be made they would never have investigated his economic activities had Ms. Moses not had an animus against him because of his position on affirmative action? That is the argument that appellant makes, but I think that we can go back to the example given earlier in this court today of the district attorney. Are we to say that even though the original investigation was started by somebody that had an allegedly improper motive, that ultimately the person cannot be held responsible for acts that would lead to termination or discipline? Are, and that, are, I don't, well, I only asked the question. I'm not sure I got an answer. It is, so let's assume that to be the case. Let's assume we have a... A, a district attorney who prosecutes people on a racial basis and you go to trial and you get and pre, and puts on puts on evidence from racially biased witnesses with an axe to grind and the trial results in the, in a conviction or a civil liability against the, the the defendant no problem well there i think you would look at at the evidence presented even if the judge is fair and the jury is is unbiased no problem well, you would look at the evidence presented, the independent nature of the evidence presented, the independent nature of the fact finder. And so looking at what evidence was in front of the judge. And here you, know, you have a, an independent investigation that even the Poland court has recognized is a very important step. And if we here today say that it doesn't matter what the university does, that if you start out and there's a bad seed from the beginning, it continues all the way through, then employers won't be motivated to do independent investigations. And they serve a very important purpose. And it just can't be possible on the record before us that three faculty members completely unrelated to this department spent four days in hearing and who knows how many hours after that presenting this um, report on their own independent finding, independent faculty member, independent academic judgment on the facts of this case. And to move back to the causation link, when we go forward and we look at the evidence on the conflict of commitment issue, although Ms. Moses may have filed the initial charge, the evidence really was presented by many different people um, in the hearing itself about the outside business and the outside income that was unreported. Let me ask you the question I asked Mr. Siegel, and I, I take his point. It is almost impossible to fire a faculty member, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, but is there anything in this record that suggests that this is the kind of thing for which people are normally fired? Um, as Mr. Siegel indicated, uh, evidence was not presented one way or the other as to so, whether this was... So his argument is, well, maybe I did this stuff, but you wouldn't have fired me, but for the fact that I'm outspoken on affirmative action. Um, how, how is the court to address that in the absence of any evidence one way or the other? 
Actually, Your Honor, I don't, I don't know that there was a um, specific, a, as you indicated, there might be in some cases a specific similarly situated individual. But Bill Kidder, the individual who signed the charge and, and carried it forward, uh, did testify in the underlying proceeding about um, the significance given to the conflict of commitment rules and that they are enforced not just at UC Riverside but across the system and that um, they do move forward on these issues. Yeah, I guess what troubles me about this case, and I'm not sure which way it pushes me, is essentially his argument is, look, I got the death penalty for something that I wouldn't have got the death penalty for, but for the fact that I'm an outspoken advocate of affirmative action. And there's some evidence that at least the process began for that reason. So why isn't that enough to get him to a jury? Well, in this case, um, any argument to that effect has been waived because Dr. Corey has not alleged that the punishment doesn't match the crime. No, but he's, he's alleged that he was only punished because of retaliatory animus. Correct? That's, that's his legal claim, yes. Yeah, and so I guess if you're only punished because of retaliatory animus, the punishment never meets, matches the crime. <laughs> Well, that, that certainly is a way um, to answer your question to Mr. Siegel earlier about whether you can show if other similarly situated people were treated differently or if the punishment should match the crime. That is a portion of pretext that the plaintiff always has an opportunity and the burden shifting for retaliation to show as an element of pretext that no one else is treated this way, that the punishment was excessive, that I didn't actually do what they allege I did. Dr. Corey did not submit any evidence or any argument on that point in the summary judgment. And that would have been his opportunity to say the punishment does not match the crime. And there are many other cases that I'm sure have been before this court where such an argument is made. I didn't deserve that because I didn't do it. Or I did it, but that, that punishment did not match it. That argument was not made here as a matter of showing pretext. Counsel, what does the, what, what does the record show about the circumstances under which Mr. Kidder became aware of these possible conflict conflicts of interest and specifically is there any indication that he became aware of of those possible conflicts through any interaction that he had with Moses Smith and Stewart um he did become aware of the um issues that led to the second charge, the conflict of commitment charge, as a result of investigating another issue. It's a little bit like the Lakeside Scott case, where as they were investigating another administrative issue, these other what issues other, came to what light. What other administrative issue? Um, Your Honor, it was, it was somehow related, and I, and I apologize, I can't direct you to that specific fact, but the, it was related in some way to administration, and there is an allegation, at least in this case, and for purposes of summary judgment, um, we did not dispute it, that there was some sort of connection between Stuart Smith, Moses, and Dr. Kidder 